The hemoglobin A1c is a test that tells us the average level of blood sugar over about two to three months. So hemoglobin, as we all know, is this protein that's in our red blood cells. It gives the red blood cells the red color and it carries oxygen. The sugar in our blood is called glucose and glucose does tons of things in our body, but among them it binds to hemoglobin in our red blood cells. And since the red blood cells live for about three months, the hemoglobin A1C test can tell us what the average level of glucose is in our blood for about two to three months. It's an adjunct test. It doesn't tell the whole story. You could have a very high hemoglobin A1C and yet have had several periods of clinical hypoglycemia. What we're looking at with a hemoglobin A1C is the glycosylated hemoglobin bound to the erythrocyte, which is directly proportional to the amount of glucose available to it over the 120-day life cycle of the red blood cell. About 1% of your red blood cells, your erythrocytes, are made and destroyed every day. And as those red blood cells hit the circulation, there's only a little bit of glucose attached. But the thing about red blood cells is they are freely permeable to glucose. Now, not everybody's the same, particularly when you have medical conditions. So there are certain medical conditions, for instance, where you have a rapid red blood cell turnover. So that would happen in hemolysis. And for diabetics who have had a hemolysis event, you will have a falsely low hemoglobin A1C because the erythrocyte just hasn't been around long enough. Glucose attaches to certain proteins like hemoglobin A1C in hyperglycemia over time. So the time that a erythrocyte or red blood cell lives is very important in interpreting a hemoglobin A1C. And it can get kind of complex. So an A1C value may be falsely elevated or even decreased in a patient with chronic kidney disease. So if you have chronic kidney disease, apparently having a lot of urea around can cause a false elevation of hemoglobin A1C. So we need to take that into consideration when we're interpreting these assays. And then likewise, if you have chronic kidney disease and you're on dialysis and you're also on erythropoietin, you may have a quicker red cell turnover and therefore a false decrease in what you're measuring on the hemoglobin A1C. And the problem with false data in medicine is that you're better off not having any data. You're better off being ignorant than having the wrong data. But fortunately, most of our patients don't have major alterations in the red cell turnover. But you gotta be careful in blood loss and hemolytic anemia, and then just be a little bit careful in chronic renal failure. I mean, you can follow trends, you can see how they add up to someone's rapid finger sticks and watch for the exceptions. But fortunately, hemoglobin A1C is a pretty good test. Looking at the glycosylated hemoglobin, it does do a pretty good job at reflecting the average blood glucose over the past two to three months. So it's useful. Hemoglobin A1Cs are like bikinis. They show you a lot, but not everything. You're gonna have to interpret it with a bunch of other data and input. And like looking at someone in a bikini, you're going to have to 
take a lot more in as far as learning about that person than just how they look superficially. And that is where a lot of the controversy starts coming into these guidelines, these target guideline controversies with hemoglobin A1C that have been particularly relevant in the very recent past. One of the saddest aspects of the history of medicine, in my opinion, in nearly all cultures, is that we need just small amounts of evidence to make something a routine practice and keep that tradition alive for a very long period of time, and then a ton of evidence before we abandon a practice. So the list in modern medicine, Western medicine goes on as far as medications and devices that we spend billions on and later realize they didn't help or caused harm or just a crazy amount of frequency and lab tests that we order daily as hospitalists in nearly every hospital and the list goes on. And I think it's true for alternative medicine and all types of other cultures where abandoning a practice, even if the evidence isn't great, can be very challenging. Hemoglobin A1C is a very frequently ordered test that now falls into that category of debate, particularly in setting target levels. So for a long time, and it still happens in some places, that doctors have been paid and their clinical skills graded on hemoglobin A1C targets that, in my opinion, didn't take into account the multiple issues like patient populations and their concerns about potential harms and there's a few reasons why some healthcare providers, and particularly healthcare companies, look at patients as being their numbers more than looking at the overall person. It is the time of big data. And in this era, I, I've been like that in certain moments where I've been rushed, where a patient morphs into a source of data for input into an electronic health record, where you just need to obtain that data and move on because you're so behind or feeling so rushed. It's not a good excuse, but it is a reality of where we're at with modern medicine, at least in the United States. And those in the quality industry that have justified payments for doctors based on hemoglobin A1C performance measures, they're not going to like this new controversy. But likewise, those rare providers that love doing more and more medication therapy rather than thinking that sometimes less is more, and sometimes it's very important to understand why a patient doesn't want to have tighter control. I know that's really hard for me and a lot of you to understand that, but there are times where if you do take a few moments to explore why a patient may feel that way, you can get some surprising answers. And recently, I had a patient who had a hemoglobin A1C and rapid finger sticks that would be way above anybody's guideline. It was way too out of control and way too much hyperglycemia that's going to affect their nerves, their kidneys, their eyes, cause infections, all the problems that go along with too much sugar in the body. And after a few minutes of being frustrated inside as to why this patient didn't really care, or maybe she cared, but she certainly put on a front that it wasn't bothering her to have hyperglycemia, she then went into a story where she explained she was in Oregon and had a major car wreck because of her hypoglycemia, where she got hurt, other people got hurt, and at all costs, she really needed to avoid this, both psychologically and physically. 
So for her, having uncontrolled diabetes with hyperglycemia was way more important than ever risking another hypoglycemia episode. And as healthcare providers, we can be on a single track mind of this is how your cardiovascular risk is going to be affected by your blood sugar control. But for a patient, it may be something along the lines of they had a car accident or maybe things that studies just can't take into account, like they're spaced out by hypoglycemia too many times at their job and get fired. And this is why shared decision-making, where a patient has a lot of input into their satisfaction with the treatment plan, their engagement with a treatment plan that includes lifestyle and medications, we have to have that communication and that buy-in from really both sides, the healthcare provider and the patient, to make that all work. And one of the sad parts of big data grading these days is that I actually know of several providers who have told me that they have dropped patients who would only be partially compliant with what they were suggesting for diabetes, and they just couldn't get their hemoglobins A1Cs into a range that made the medical practice look good. And rather than look bad on all their reports, they just told those patients they have to move on to another medical practice. It's crazy, but that is the law of unintended consequences. And then the physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs that are in practices and have philosophies that we are going to work with these patients no matter what, they look really bad in this era of big data. And to make it even more interesting and difficult to talk about, I was reading this commentary in the Annals of Internal Medicine on August 21st, 2018. So this was written by Dr. Brian Burke, MD, and Sandra Hedden, PharmD, and they're at the Dayton VA Medical Center, and they make some good points. One is that the accuracy of hemoglobin A1C tests can be different in different laboratories. So imagine that you're being graded, but your lab, for some reason, has higher hemoglobin A1Cs than another lab. But another point, and this is debated throughout the literature in hemoglobin A1Cs, but they say there is evidence that there is a population difference in which African-Americans have higher hemoglobin A1C levels relative to some other minorities. Now, what they don't get into, what I'm not going to get into, is the racial differences in hemoglobin A1C because it's not totally clear. Is it because of worse control? Is it because of changes in hemoglobin or a combination of both? But the point being is if you're willing to take on or live or provide care in certain areas of the country, we know there are social determinants of health and treatment targets for type 2 diabetes. And that actually was another opinion piece by a Dr. D.R. Bailey-Miles out of Johns Hopkins in that same Annals of Internal Medicine where he says, diabetes disproportionately affects vulnerable groups, including racial and ethnic minorities, and those at socioeconomic disadvantage. Now, of course, type 2 diabetes affects all types of people, including very wealthy people that don't have any socioeconomic disadvantage. But the point is, is that it disproportionately affects vulnerable groups. 
again, it gets to that point, do we grade a Beverly Hills physician both in terms of payment and how they look on quality measures the same way that we would grade someone who lives in a small town whose factory closed and has 70% unemployment in the area. So now it's probably a good idea to mention what the conflicting diabetes guidance and guidelines are. So the ACP, the American College of Physicians, now recommends that those with type 2 diabetes, and I want to re-emphasize that point like I have in all my other type 2 diabetes lectures, that we're talking about type 2 diabetes and not type 1 diabetes. But those with type 2 diabetes, they recommend a hemoglobin A1c level of between 7% and 8%. Now that is very different from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists who are targeting a hemoglobin A1c of 6.5% or lower. And as all of you who take care of patients know, there can be a lot of difference in the intensity of treatment between someone who's 7.8 and 6.0. And what you saw after the ACP recommendations is that the American Diabetes Association, the American Association of Diabetes Educators, and the Endocrine Society all came out against the ACP new glycemic levels. I don't have too strong of an opinion on either side of this debate other than I find it very fascinating because the ACP was saying when they looked at the summary of trials and targets for hemoglobin A1c of less than 7, it didn't end up reducing long-term microvascular or macrovascular clinical outcomes compared to just having a target in the 7 to 8% range. And the assessment was that the harms of going to too low of a glycemic level, which are hypoglycemia, weight gain, and death, and others, were outweighed by the benefits that most people got from going below 7%. Now, this was the ACP interpretation of looking at large randomized trials, you know, the ACCORD trial, the ADVANCE trial, UKPDS, the Veterans Affairs Diabetes trial. Now, I would like to put in a word of caution, which is nobody should interpret these results that glucose control doesn't matter at all. It does matter. It's just how much glucose control, how tight are we talking that we need to keep patients in. But don't interpret these as saying a hemoglobin A1c of 9 or 10 is okay because it's not. But I do think the ACP has a lot of valid points. The problem becomes the newer research on newer drugs, so not looking at all those major big trials that I just mentioned. So when we deal with glucagon-like peptide 1s and SGLT2 inhibitors, which don't often get associated with hypoglycemia and weight gain, and some are showing potential long-term cardiovascular benefit, we just don't know how that's going to play out as far as treat-to-target recommendations in the future. At the same time, while that long-term data is pending on some of these newer drugs that can be $400 to $500 per month, and you may need more than one of them, are we really going to spend $1,000 a month to get to a hemoglobin A1c less than 7 
to get to that number without really knowing that we're providing a lot of benefit. It may or may not provide benefit, and that's why the additional studies are very much needed. But I gotta say, the trend in the data, in my opinion, is that it likely will be beneficial and better than some of our older drugs like sulfonylureas and insulin and the things that cause more weight gain and more hypoglycemia. It may be worth taking a moment to actually say the four guidance statements that the ACP put out in 2018 in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So this was hemoglobin A1C targets for glycemic control with pharmacologic therapy for non-pregnant adults with type 2 diabetes. So the first guidance statement was clinicians should personalize goals for glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes on the basis of a discussion of benefits and harms of pharmacotherapy, patient preferences, patient's general health, and life expectancy, as well as treatment burden and cost of care. The second guidance statement was that clinicians should aim to achieve a hemoglobin A1C level between 7 and 8% in most patients with type 2 diabetes. The third guidance statement was that clinicians should consider de-intensifying pharmacologic therapy in patients with type 2 diabetes who achieve hemoglobin A1C levels less than 6.5%. And then their fourth statement is that clinicians should treat patients with type 2 diabetes to minimize symptoms related to hyperglycemia and avoid targeting a hemoglobin A1C level in patients with a life expectancy less than 10 years due to advanced age. So they say 80 years and older residences in a nursing home or those with chronic conditions such as dementia, cancer, end-stage kidney disease, or severe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or congestive heart failure because the harms outweigh the benefits in this population. Now that last statement, I can get totally behind and I can tell you clinically as a hospitalist and sometimes in the clinic, this can be a very emotional thing when I tell a family that the patient I'm taking care of with dementia, that is their loved one, really doesn't need their diabetes treated anymore with the one drug that they're on, that it really is not going to affect things and it's one more thing we can take away safely in this patient. Again, if their diabetes is going to be fairly well controlled in that 7 to 8% range and they're a type 2 diabetic. I am not always in the less is more mindset, particularly with sleep, sex, and exercise, but I will tell you that this is one of those areas where sometimes we are just over-treating the wrong population. But thinking about the statement less is more, even though there's a lot more I do want to say about hemoglobin A1C, I think when it comes to lectures, sometimes cutting it off a little bit early rather than going on too long is the way to go. So, this is Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.